0: Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned, In Search of Wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. I am Joshua. Thank you so much for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Joseph Batarakau, the author of Step Back, Bringing the Art of Reflection into Your Busy Lives. Joseph is the John Shad Professor of Business Ethics at Harvard Business School. He's taught courses on ethics, strategy, and management in the school's MBA and executive programs. He is also the author of the book's Defining Moments and the Good Struggle. The conversation discusses how to integrate reflection into our busy lives, what we can learn about the art of reflection from people like Marcus Aurelius and Montaigne, how to practice reflection without rumination, and so much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Joseph Badarakow. Hi, Joe. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for being on the show. It's good to be here, Joshua. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Well, I'm excited to discuss the art of reflection with you. This is a topic that's come up in a number of previous interviews that we've done. And I really found the book Step Back to be a fun read. I appreciated the integration of wisdom from people like Montaigne and Marcus Aurelius with your research. How was the process of writing this book compared to some of your previous?
1: It was a challenge. I did interview about a hundred people, mostly business managers at all levels, and I did it at length That was real that was fun. I learned a lot and I enjoyed getting to know them a little. The hard part was actually creating a relatively short book from what turned out to be about two thousand pages of transcriptions of the interviews and then maybe another 6 or 700 single space pages of notes i took as background on philosophers and neuroscience and things like that so that was a long <laughs> challenging process <laughs> you know you write stuff you think it's pretty good and then something's got to go and that's
0: tough well i love it you did a did a great job and it's a, a very practical Book as well. So I really enjoyed it. Was there a moment that planted the seed of this book about reflection for you?
1: I think there was probably a moment when I realized that this was potentially a valuable and doable topic that I would enjoy doing. But I think that moment came out of years of my giving advice to people that they really should reflect and people telling me that. And, you know, a lot of people give this advice. And most of us think we should spend more time reflecting, and the critical moment was when sort of a light bulb went off, and I realized that all this advice was given and heard without any specifics about what reflection is or how you do it, or if you're busy, you know, like most people are, when do you find time to do it? And then I realized, why well, I ought to just talk to a lot of busy people see what they do see what they say and at that point i said oh, great that's doable and that will be fun to do
0: well maybe a good starting point would be with with just the basics how would you define reflection
1: well in its broadest sense i think it's trying to understand what really matters and that can be what really matters either about what's going on in a situation And how you feel about the situation, what you're thinking, what other people are doing, could be what's really going on if you're walking through nature. There's a second setting for asking what really matters. And that's when you're trying to get an answer to a question or solve a problem. You know, what are the critical levers or variables you've got to think through? And then the third setting that I focused on was when you've got to actually do something. I refer to this as measuring up. And there you're reflecting on what really matters in terms of what you're going to do and when and with whom and so forth. But the key thing is it's time spent thinking, trying to focus on what really matters.
0: You use a beautiful analogy with this term mosaic reflections, and you write in the book that reflection can take place in the cracks and crevices of your busy life. I love it. In in your interviews with leaders, what were some of those common examples of finding the cracks?
1: Well, here's an interesting thing that I discovered as I went through the interviews. Almost everybody had found their own sort of times and places that worked for them. So I put the different times and places into some basic categories and organized the book around them. We can talk about that, but I think the key thing was that almost everybody, and without trying, just in a perfectly natural way, I'm living, I've got some things I want to figure out, I've got things in my mind, they sort of pieced together their own periods of small moments, occasionally longer stretches of time, that sort of worked for them. But I really didn't find a pattern. I mean, Some people did it while they were commuting, some while they were exercising, some in the morning. It goes on. Some while they were cooking, it goes on and on.
0: That's interesting and, and so true with so many things of us being very unique in what works for one person doesn't yes. work for another.
1: And some people would say, you know, my wife in one case, this one guy was a very successful consultant, finally dragged him to a weekend-long meditation. And he hated it. He absolutely hated it. Said, I just can't do things like that another guy accompanied his wife without any stress or coercion. And this happened to him maybe 25, 30 years ago. And he became a regular meditator ever since. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) draw your own conclusion.
0: Around the the meditation retreat, you write in, in the chapter, Aim for Good Enough, that we put aside this image that we have of going up to the mountain and doing a long, silent retreat, what is the recipe for good enough reflection?
1: Well, first of all, let me just emphasize what you just said, because it really is important. And that is a lot of us, I think, have an image of what really counts as reflection. And it's an extended period of solitary time, in tranquility, maybe guided by someone with a broader perspective, maybe we bring to it something we really want to think about. It is kind of going up to the mountain. And that's what a lot of people view as reflection. In fact, in a good number of the interviews, they started out, somebody would come to my office and I'd say, well, let's talk about reflection. And they would say, I'm glad to be helpful, but I'm not the right person because I really don't spend any time reflecting and that was what they had in mind it was only after we talked for a while and for about half the people i interviewed them twice two weeks apart so there could be a little period of self observation in between they realized they were doing reflection in this sort of other way so the first thing about good enough is to get rid of this classic perfectionist standard and then the other is once you you're aware and you pay some attention to what works for you sort of when and where you don't try to do it. You try to do it, I guess, every day or as often as possible. But if you miss a few days, just try to get back on track. Don't beat yourself up about it. There's a saying you've probably heard, the better is the enemy of the good. <laughs> and that's what I mean by good enough. Find something that works for you. Do it most of the time. Spend the time well, which is what a lot of the book is about, how you spend these little mosaics well, but do what you can. Life is busy. You know, we often fall short. There's the old saying, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing really well. That's often true. But sometimes (laughs) if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing it okay. (laughs) It's better than nothing.
0: In the back of my mind, as reading this chapter, you kind of started a quote that was running the Theodore Roosevelt, do what you can where you are with what you have.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: You read about Marcus Aurelius, his quote, this uh, spaces of quiet. What would you say are some spaces of quiet in modern times? Good
1: question. Some of them really surprised me as I learned about them. As I mentioned a moment ago, a lot of people reflect while they commute. And I don't mean they're sitting there in their cars listening to the radio, you know, and occasionally their minds drift. I mean, they... May listen to the radio a bit to catch up on the news. They're in a lot of slow traffic. They turn the radio or whatever, or the streaming off, and then they think about something that either was on their mind during the day or something you're going to do that day, and they really try to make some progress on it. I was also surprised at how often, so out of a hundred people, I may be talking about ten now, said that they found exercise was a great time, and again they were somewhat systematic about it. They'd say, I'm going to go for a run. Here's something I want to think about a little bit. This is quiet time. There's nobody from the office here with me. And, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have an answer at the end, but they would have, they hoped they'd made some progress on it. But there, as I said before, there was such a range of examples. One of my favorite ones is right at the beginning of the book. And I got it from a guy who maybe 25 years ago started a very successful healthcare private equity firm. So his firm would put seed money in a lot of businesses. He'd be on the board. He'd meet with the CEO. And what he would say to the CEO was this, if I ever come into your office and I find you with your feet up on your desk, looking out the window, I'm going to double your salary. (laughs) And that is just such a great example that says you don't have to go to a special place. You can do it in a small period of time. It's hard to do. That's, you know, well, double your salary. And his view was that these men and women running these startups, they were typically younger, they are putting out fires all the time. So it's finding these little fragments of time and the ones that work for you and then trying to spend the time well is the follow
0: on to that. I love that. And that brings up the visual of the next chapter of this downshifting. I kept thinking of so many of us kind of redlining our vehicles and kind of failing to to downshift. You say a fundamental aim of of downshifting is deepening your sense of what you're experiencing. What are some ways to to downshift in in everyday life that, that come to mind?
1: Well, first, Joshua, let me just explain really clearly what it is. And I think for most of us, most of the time, we are working on a kind of to-do list. It might be something on our phone, might be on paper, it might be in our mind, but we're in a meeting, running a meeting, it's just some things we want to get done. So it's sort of task, task, task. And downshifting is breaking away from that for at least a little period of time. It's trying to Sort of get a sense of what is going on around you or inside you. How are you feeling? Is there something in the back of your mind that's kind of troubling you? How are people at this meeting that you're running or you're attending? How do they seem to be reacting? So it's finding a way that works for you to kind of flip that task, task, task mentality off, which is a valuable mentality. You know, It's how the world gets done. There's lots of stuff to do, and that really needs doing. But that's fundamentally what downshifting is. And people did that in a variety of ways. So sometimes when they were by themselves, it was literally, I mean, one woman, for example, had a really interesting approach to it. She ran a staff of about 1,500 people. And of course, the natural way for her to meet with them and solve problems was for them to come to her office, okay? And she could kind of stack people up outside task after task. What she tried to do sometime was schedule a meeting in someone else's office, walk there slowly. And it wasn't, as she described, it management by walking around. She was just trying to get out of her familiar space, away from her laptop and the mail, and just sort of walk slowly and see what came to her mind, what she happened to observe. Maybe she'd run into somebody and chat a little bit. That's what I mean by this kind of ostensibly unproductive way you're spending your time. Feet up looking out the window is another example of this. But it's really finding ways to schedule some of these little quote useless breaks into your day. I interviewed one woman and as we went back and forth, she basically she didn't describe what she did as a to live list. But that's what she was doing. And I put the label on it. But when she planned her day, She had a couple periods in there where she was going to get a cup of coffee and sit at her desk and not look at her laptop screen. Just look at the coffee for five minutes. And this was on her list of to do's. She wanted to check it off, but she felt this was more about living, stepping off the sort of assembly line that we're all on almost all the time and seeing what you see, what you feel, what's bothering you, you know, what you might be overlooking that's what this downshifting is.
0: Mm. It reminds me of something I heard Parker J. Palmer say in a recent interview of, is there any grace in this schedule? Hmm. How brief could this downshift be? Could it be 30 to 60 seconds in some of the people that you interviewed?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. It would make for a really good study, although it's one of these studies about how people think. They're they're tough to do because you put electrodes on people's heads and you ask them a lot of questions and you've pretty much destroyed the thing you're trying to observe with all the tools. Sometimes people will report did report that when they took very brief breaks, they were sort of like taking a lid off the top of their head and something would just pop into their head. And it seemed like a good idea. Now, it wasn't necessarily a good idea, they said, You have to think about it, check it out, and so forth. But this idea of sort of taking the lid off for a little while, the thinking cap, and seeing what's there, I think can, in some cases, it can happen pretty briefly. In a number of cases, people talked about getting their best ideas in the classic way, in the shower. (laughs) And I, I suspect a lot of people listening have had that experience. And that's not because you sit there, stand there for 10 minutes, but You've really pulled yourself out of ordinary life. Something flashes into your head. You try to remember it and and you see what's there. I mean, our minds are complicated. We tend to reduce them to just sort of information and task processing machines, but they evolved to be responsive to a vast range of stimuli from outside and inside just so we could survive. And by continuously narrowing our focus to get things done, we're not taking advantage of that broader sort of scanning and responsiveness.
0: You highlighted a, a really interesting point in this chapter, quoting the art of stillness, of it taking courage to kind of step out of the, of the fray. I think that's so important to acknowledge. And any thoughts on how we find that courage in the heat of the moment of that to-do list to step back?
1: Yeah, I want to be careful, of course, not to misuse the term courage, because there's, you know, real courage, firefighters rushing into buildings. But if you take a broader classic Aristotelian sense of courage, it's knowing what's right and then doing it, okay? And doing it even when you're, you've got some obstacles, some fear, something that's keeping you from doing it. I think the first step is to really observe yourself. That's one of the themes that really runs through the book, is trying to observe yourself and see what works for you. This is kind of looking to see what isn't working for you, what's keeping you from reflecting. Now, everybody's explanation these days is social media and handheld devices, okay? And there's certainly a lot of truth to that. They are addictive. They're designed to be addictive. I spend too much time playing. Certain games, I suspect everybody, if they were honest, would admit this, okay? But that isn't the whole story. Another reason that people often won't step back a little bit is that they feel they can't afford the time because they've got a lot of really important things to do and they're responsible people and they're right. But what they're ignoring is a kind of responsibility to themselves and in turn to others that comes from not doing what you really feel you should be doing right now and giving yourself this little privilege, may seem like a privilege, it may seem like an indulgence of spending a little time thinking about things. Another thing that can take even more courage to overcome is kind of a dim awareness that if you stop and reflect, you're gonna have to confront some hard things you're trying to avoid thinking through. And these can be work-related things, things with a peer at work, personal, lots of things. That was, I think, Edgar Degas, the painter, said there is a kind of success that is indistinguishable from panic. So that's an extreme statement. I'm just trying to get away from something and get away as fast as I can, so I'm not going to pause and mess that up. And the other thing we have to realize is that even if you go back classically, and I think you know this. You can go back to monks and pick whatever century you want in a monastery. Not only didn't they have social media, they didn't have electricity. And if you look at things they wrote, they described the challenge of focusing on the more serious things they were in the monastery for. The Buddhists had this great description of our minds. They refer to our minds as monkey minds, always leaping around and that probably helped us survive. We were always vigilant for threats and something we could eat. So you've really got to face up to which of these is your is standing in the way if you take a little time off. What I want to point out is just not social media. You've really got to observe yourself. And then next step is the one we talked about before. See if there's some times over the course of a day or a week when you overcome this obstacle and you actually do find yourself. Stepping back a little bit and not working on task after task. This self-observation is really critical. Okay, what are the barriers? And when do I naturally sort of overcome them? There is something to be said for courage, but it would be a lot better to do this without courage. It's a lot better to build on circumstances where you find it easy or pleasant to reflect. And by the way, the standard view of reflection is solitary contemplation of some sort. A lot of people said they did really good reflection with another person. And there was someone at work in their life. They just had a different kind of conversation with this person. And it was a good, satisfying conversation. And they could look and talk a little more broadly. That's a real kind of mosaic reflection. And that doesn't take courage. That just means you set aside a little time to do something you actually like doing and comes naturally. So, part of my aim was to try to make reflection easier and doable. And this is part of it, looking for the times when it comes naturally to you.
0: I love that. That's really helpful, Joe. And I I really appreciate that responsibility to yourself kind of perspective that you initially started with. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. The next chapter, Ponder the Tough Issues, what would be a definition of pondering?
1: Sure. Pondering is, well, let me go back to what I think is sort of what you called sort of our default mentality. You know, if you're a manager, it's kind of problem, 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 maybe an opportunity, problem, problem, problem. And our default mentality is, okay, let's get the facts. Let's get to the bottom of it, figure out what I need to do or somebody else needs to do and move on to the next one. Okay. That's really kind of trying to crack the case, solve the problem. Okay. Pondering says, wait a minute, this might be something a little more important or more complicated. Can we look at it from a variety of different perspectives? And this is something that I think we have to do somewhat consciously. We have to make an effort. And the people in the book had a variety of ways of doing it. So if they were thinking, for example, about a decision they had to make and kind of weighing two options and weren't sure which was right, one guy said that what he tried to do was imagine as vividly as he could what he would be doing and what other people would be doing sort of day by day on the ground with each option. So it wasn't just kind of an abstraction with cost and benefit. Who would be doing what? Would they like it? Would it work? What things might they run into? That's looking at things in a lot more, in a lot more depth. Another tactic when people were really stuck on how to think about something is that they would try to think about it from the perspective of somebody else. Let's say a critic who thought that whatever you were thinking is the right solution may really be the wrong solution. Okay? Some people literally had conversations with themselves, and typically not allowed, but I I would say out of 105 or six people said, I try not to do this on the bus, you know, or walking down the hall, but I'll actually talk with myself about this and I'll say, well, yeah, I could really do it this way and there are reasons, but, you know, maybe there's some reasons on the other side. And they would say they would literally go back and forth. Another guy doodled. He took this quite seriously. He had a whiteboard in his office and he would draw funny pictures that tried to represent option one, option two. And just sort of see what came. But this is again breaking out of the default mentality and trying to look at things from a variety of different perspectives. In the end, of course, you got to pick one. You can't do this on everything. But if it's something that's complicated and you feel, boy, I better get this right, don't assume that what comes to you right away is necessarily the right way to to handle things.
0: When would you say pondering maybe transitions to rumination?
1: Yes. Great question, because I think it applies to in so many cases, and I'm saying that for myself as well. I think as soon as you find yourself going over the same territory more than a couple times, and it really is the same territory, then you need to take a break. Okay. Go talk to somebody, doodle, whatever is going to help you break out of this routine. One of the men I spoke with had stepped down as CEO of a huge American retailer. Everybody listening would recognize the company. He said when he was stuck, basically going in loops, and he was talking about big kind of strategic issues or really serious personnel issues. He would try to stop thinking about it. He would close the door to his office, and then he would put on some Broadway show tunes that he really liked <laughs> and put them on kind of loud. And I didn't say whether he sang along, but he was just trying to get like a complete break and get out of a loop so as soon as you're looping, you got to do something
0: A concept that you also write about here is something that came up on a previous episode we did with the author of the Socrates Express Eric Weiner, this living with a question i yes. I really love that. Could you speak to this idea?
1: I'd be glad to and By coincidence, the same individual who used show tunes said sometimes that didn't work. He'd think a little bit more. And then he said that what he would do is just go about the rest of his day, go to a dinner, whatever he had to do that night. The question was always in the back of his mind, and he would come back to it from time to time. Now, eventually, you've got to make a decision, okay? And he said sometimes, you know, he would sleep on it, literally. The answer would come to him. And by the way, as an answer to your question, another question on rumination is one of the people I interviewed was actually an Italian, born in Italy, and grew up in Italy. And he said there was an Italian proverb that was, sleep is the best counselor. Mm. And this idea was that if you're just ruminating on something, try to go to sleep and you'll often not necessarily wake up in the middle of the night with the right answer and you write it on a pad next to your bed. You wake up in the morning with a different feel for the problem, a different perspective. You've made some progress. So you got to break the loop and then live with it for a while. Now, you've got to also look at the size of the problem. Some problems, you're in a loop, go down the hall, knock on the door of somebody you trust who's got some relevant background, talk to them for five minutes, go back and make a decision. Other cases, I mean, one, one executive was talking about a huge acquisition. Everybody on his team thought yes. And something bothered him, and he just was feeling no. So he said, We've all got to come back, and I want to hear the arguments against that from you. And they did that again the next day. This was they were in a loop, and groupthink was probably at work. Fortunately, he broke the cycle. They came back the next day, and after considering, and this is another approach to pondering, look really looking at the contrary. Ways of thinking about it, he said. They decided against the acquisition. They, they decided they would only bid to a certain point. They were outbid by a competitor who paid far too much, and suffered from it afterwards. Because if you pay too much, it's pretty hard to get a decent ROI, and you do a lot of things you shouldn't do. You know, a case like that, big issue. You've got to set aside the time.
0: That seems so important, though. The arguments that you mention, or those. Am I looking at this with the same lens or the same perspective, coming back to it? It it brings up Marcus Aurelius with the Stoic exercise of a view from above or deliberately looking at it from another angle.
1: Well, and of course, for him, one of his angles was his teacher, Epictetus, one of the great Stoics. Aurelius is interesting. I'll, let me spend just a moment on this, Joshua, because if oh, you great. look at his wonderful little book, Meditations, which supposedly scholars think really should be called, may at one point been called, to himself. So it was really his personal reflections, no intention of it ever being published. But at the beginning of the version of it that survived is this very peculiar prologue in which he thanks a lot of people. And nobody will recognize any of the names unless they're a very serious scholar of Roman antiquity. But he thanks each one of these people for something specific that they did for him or showed him or exemplified. And it's as if he felt accountable to this jury of people. And when he was trying to think something through that maybe had to do with family, there were a couple of people he thought of who he thought were exemplars of good decisions about family. And he he kind of came back To them or his interpretation of them. But this is another way of breaking out of here's a problem. I'm smart. I don't have much time. Let's do this. Bring me the next one. You're going to run into a lot of problems with that approach.
0: That's really helpful. I think that was my favorite chapter the pause and measure up. Something I really enjoyed that would love to hear you elaborate on is the perils of following our own moral compass which I think kind of ties into that.
1: I'm actually starting to work on another book, which really will be about what is a moral compass. And my very preliminary thinking is that we often make a mistake and think that a moral compass is like the kind of compass you carry in your pocket. It shows you true north and then you go do that. And that's true for simple things. So if you're walking down the street and the person in front of you, you see very clearly, accidentally drops their wallet. Your moral compass should say, pick it up and give it back, right? There's no confusion about the facts. It's theirs that was an accident. No confusion about the moral principle. It's theirs you shouldn't steal, okay? The hard problems aren't like that, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indubitable facts in a single principle. We, facts are complicated. There's uncertainty. We're pulled in different directions. And there I think we have a deeper kind of moral compass, but it requires reflection and pausing to really sort of engage it and may even involve these steps we've been talking about, which is the downshifting, the pondering, and then thinking about what you're going to do, but in terms of accountability to yourself and to other people, that I think elicits a much deeper sense of, uh, I think that may be your true moral compass. I interviewed two executives recently. I was talking to them about moral compasses. They're different men, both quite successful in their 50s, early 60s. They were both sailors. And as soon as we started talking about compasses, they said, look, we're not talking about these toys. We're talking about the kind of compasses you have on a big, serious ship. And this is a very Complicated technological device, and you got to learn how to use the thing. So that's what I think about our moral compass, and reflection is really opens the door to using it well. I think.
0: I'm glad that you touched on that. That was my final question. I, I heard that you mentioned that in a previous interview about this personal moral wisdom. Now that you're discussing it a bit, how would you say it connects to Montaigne? in kind of that thought that was on his mind of of what do i know any connection there
1: <laughs> yeah well yes absolutely what's fascinating about montaigne for the folks who like him is that you read some of his essays and he covers everything and he jumps around it's almost like the buddhist monkey mind that we talked about earlier but as he touches down on different things he pays close attention. He may notice some things about them that we didn't notice. He looks at them in a slightly different way. And I think the, the first part of using your this true moral compass is being clear about in a situation where when you're making a hard decision, you're in a situation where there's a zillion different things going on. And often you've been in a meeting with people and they disagree about what the situation is and what you should do. If everybody agrees and you've done it before, no problem. Go ahead and do it. But they're looking at different facets of the situation out of the hundreds or God knows how many things are going on. Who can pull this off? What do the numbers really tell us? How ready is the technology? Whatever it is. And you're looking at different facets of the situation. This really is sort of Montaigne's world, which is just this world of all sorts of possibilities, all sorts of facts, all sorts of factoids, all sorts of judgment calls, all sorts of uncertainties. So an important first step before you decide is to say, be really clear. This comes back to the question of what really matters. What am I saying really matters in this situation? What am I going to put my chips on on and say that... So-and-so who I trust and like disagrees with me on this. They're emphasizing this is important. I'm saying these three facets of the situation are important. And you've got to be really clear about that because we like to think we're seeing everything, we're waiting everything, we're judging everything. The world is too complicated and our minds are far too messy. So you've got to stop and say, what am I picking out of these myriad facets of a situation that I really want to put my chips on, and now we're going to figure out what to do.
0: I love that. I appreciate that as we start to to kind of wrap up here, just a few closing questions if i if I could we're sure big readers here on on in search of wisdom, and after everybody reads step back. <laughs> What comes to mind as a as a book recommendation on the topic of reflection or this this new topic that you're curious about?
1: I haven't found a really good book on the new topic that's sort of nonfiction. But I teach a course at Harvard Business School. It's an elective course where students read works of serious fiction rather than case studies. And so my answer is to find a work of fiction that you like that where the protagonist world sort of reminds you of your world or you engage in that world and really follow the individual, the protagonist of the story, see how they think, how they make really hard decisions, see everything that goes into it, their thoughts, their feelings, their mistakes, whatever, and use that as an opportunity to reflect a little bit on how you would do things differently. But you got to do this with a book That you really like, and it doesn't have to be fiction. So I'm. I just started reading this book by Michael Lewis, who's written about Moneyball and the crash in 2010. This is premonition, and he follows some quirky, committed people who early on were aware this pandemic was coming. You can say, "Boy, would I have thought about it that way? Should I have thought? Do I think about things that way?" So that's an opportunity to get some sense of what your moral compass really is, what facts you pick out how you define right and wrong, how you think about what's practical. That's kind of the core of your moral compass. On the broader topic of reflection, I would really say find a couple classics that work for you. And these don't necessarily need to be old books translated from Latin and Greek, but they ought to be books that I'd say have been around for a while and that you feel you've gone to several times. I think the real test of a classic is you keep going. You can go to it with almost any question, really literally any question, and you'll get a new perspective on it. And so this comes back again to finding your own way. So I'd find a modern classic or a classic classic, fiction, nonfiction, and use it, hold it up as kind of a mirror to your own experience. Go back and forth with it and see what you learn about yourself.
0: That's great. I love it. And I'd have to say, looking at at the book, Step Back, there are many highlights, many dog years that I can go back and look (laughs) to. So I highly encourage everyone to get the book, Step Back, How to Bring the Art of Reflection into Your Busy Life. This has been a great conversation. Where would you point people interested in in learning more?
1: Hmm. Put their feet up on the desk. (laughs) Look out the window.
0: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Professor Joe Bataracco, thank you for your time today. It has been a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Joshua. I enjoyed it. Excellent questions. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life. Write to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice, and until next time, be wise and be well. Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com/podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life, right to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, be wise and be well.